I'm Arthur Snap, and welcome to our Emergency Doomcast, a special edition of Doomsday Watch. We're here today on the 28th of January with a roundtable edition of our series, as of course, right now, we face the prospect of major conflict on European soil for the first time since World War II. As we record, the world watches as Vladimir Putin gathers his troops on Ukraine's borders, testing Ukraine and indeed NATO's nerve. We discussed what Putin wants in the first series of Doomsday Watch and heard about Putin's desire to face down NATO and use any measures he can to elevate Russia's power. As Peter Pomerantsev said in that episode, he will test Biden and NATO. And that seems to be what he's doing right now. So what is the prospect of war or can we pull Putin back from the brink? Joining me to discuss these issues, we have a welcome return from Artyom Liss, who appeared in our earlier series. Artyom is a media advisor and former BBC World Service editor in the region and is currently on assignment in his native Ukraine. Hello, Arthur. Also joining us from Ukraine is Romeo Kopriatsky, who is managing editor at the New Voice of Ukraine and co-host of English language podcast Ukraine Without the Hype, which I can really recommend to listeners who want to learn more about what's going on. Welcome, Romeo. Thanks, Arthur. Glad to be here. Later in the episode, we'll be joined by Chatham House Associate Fellow of the Russia and Eurasia Programme, John Luff, who was the first NATO representative to be actually based in Moscow in the mid-1990s. But to begin, we'll get the view from Ukraine. So we're recording this on the 28th of January. At the time of recording, uh, there is no war between uh, Ukraine and Russia in addition to the war that Russia started in 2014. But the first thing I think we need to tackle is this question of how far do we think the Russians, Vladimir Putin in particular, are willing to go? Is this a big build-up in order to facilitate some kind of coercive diplomacy or some kind of what President Biden called a minor incursion? Or is something much bigger and more ambitious being planned on the part of the Russians? So I want to go first to Romeo. What, what's your view? What's your take on where this is headed? There's a strong part of me that really wishes it was bluster. Unfortunately, I think the events um, of the past few weeks have proven that to be a tad too optimistic. Uh, we knew from the beginning when the buildup, um, well, when we started getting reports of the buildup um, in October and there were some movements, uh, all these Russian troops that were going from the Far East, from all the way deep in Russia's Asian territory. Uh, and they started sounding, you know, a couple of battalion groups here and there, some artillery pieces, um, and it wasn't too much of a cause for alarm. But then, you know, before we blinked in December, uh, we realized, well, suddenly Russia has 100,000 troops on our border. And even then, it was still possible, I think, at that point to dismiss it as, as maybe saber-rattling or just uh, intimidation or holding Ukraine hostage for uh, some future negotiations, right? But then Russia actually presented its demands, which were prima facie, utterly absurd nonsense. I mean, roll back NATO infrastructure to pre-1997 le- levels is not a is not a legitimate ask for a negotiation. No. Uh, and then when we did have the week of summits, uh, Russia did nothing but use intimidation tactics. It turned down every single proposal 
um, NATO and NATO partners offered it, uh, including arms control uh, and so on that you would think Russia would want to go for um, if it was really interested in negotiations. Um, but no, instead, what we've seen is uh, an expansion of Russian military movements into Belarus now. Um, they announced this new uh, un previously unscheduled training exercise, you know, kind of came out of nowhere. Oh, yeah, we're, we're just here to practice our uh, defenses with our Belarusian partners, as if anyone will believe that. And, you know, it wasn't long before uh, we started getting videos of Russian troops way outside of the exercise zone. Uh, we started getting news of Russia deploying missile systems along the border. And I think at this point, um, and, you know, I may be wrong, I'm not a military uh, expert and analyst, but I think at this point, the question is less, is Russia going to invade? And the question is more, when will Russia invade? Thank you. Artem, what's your take? Thank you. So I think the first thing I'd like to say is that I'm notoriously bad at making these predictions. And I can clearly remember years ago, before Russia moved into Donbass in eastern Ukraine, sitting in the office of a leading Ukrainian journalist, and he asked me, do you think they'll attack after they have captured Crimea? And I said, oh, no, no way. They have nothing to gain from doing so. With that caveat that I'm awful at making such predictions, I still think, unlike Romeo, I actually disagree with you here, Romeo. I, I do not think they will move in. I think a lot of it is bluster. And the reason I think that is that they are, I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to raise the stakes so they get what they had wanted in the past just because it's now seen as the lesser evil. Um, I'll give you two examples. One is for years and years and years, Russia has been pushing this line about the placement of NATO missiles, including um, NATO's anti-missile um, troops in Europe. And NATO had always said, this is not up for negotiation. We're not prepared to talk about that. Now, suddenly, when you have the prospect of uh, Russia pushing into Ukraine or when you have Russia's unreasonable demands of uh, perhaps NATO withdrawing from Eastern Europe, suddenly the placement of missiles is up for negotiation. Now, the other thing I want to mention is that when the uh, poisoning of Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition activist, happened um, last year, there was a lot of talk about the sort of sanctions that could be imposed on Russia in response to that. And the sanctions which were discussed at the time were actually very similar to what Mr. Biden and, and other Western politicians are putting forward now. There was talk about Russia being disconnected from SWIFT. There was talk about perhaps personal sanctions against President Putin. Now these sanctions are seen as something that will only happen should Russia attack Ukraine. And therefore, Russia has now got itself into a position where these sanctions will almost certainly not be imposed for anything that's got to do with Mr. Navalny. So by raising the stakes, by escalating to the point of de-escalation, if you wish, by raising those stakes, Russia is getting what it actually wants. I don't think that Mr. Putin actually wants to be in control of Kiev. I don't think that Mr. Putin wants to be in control of Lviv, simply because I would hope that he understands that taking over these these cities and taking over kind of biggest swathes of Ukrainian territory that would, than, than what he already controls will come with a very high price. Now, with all that being said, I think the only person who knows what Mr. Putin is planning to do is Mr. Putin himself. I don't even think people in his government, I don't even think his spokespeople, I don't even think his foreign minister know what he's trying to do. I think a lot of it depends on sort of what mood he wakes up in on any given day. Thanks, Arsham. Now, one of the things I admit to having only properly done in the last uh, few weeks, and I think probably a lot of our listeners may have the same, 
is I've actually tried to familiarize myself with a map of Ukraine. And of course, one of the things you notice is that uh, Kiev, the, the capital city, is is sort of in the middle, but it's quite close to the Belarus border, um, which uh, makes us think about what is the significance of uh, the the number of Russian troops being massed in Belarus, which of course is a very close ally, almost a client state, you might say. Uh, so one of the big debates that is ongoing is what it is the Russians might want to achieve. And one of the perhaps the more alarming prospects is, is a prospect of an actual a dash for the capital itself, perhaps to encircle it, perhaps to install a new government, who knows. But another very different scenario is to bridge the piece of land that sits between two parts of Ukraine that are currently occupied by Russia. And I'm talking about Crimea and then the the eastern provinces around Donetsk. So, uh, Romeo, uh, what's your view on, on those two different scenarios? Because you can see how for the Russians to uh, join Crimea to the land it already occupies would be a, a rather useful outcome. Sure. And that was... Um, proposed as one of the reasons for a bunch of Russian offensives uh, during the initial stage of the offensive uh, of the invasion back in 2014. Um, that was the reason, I suppose, Mariupol became such a linchpin in the occupation was simply because getting control of Mariupol would more or less give you a free run uh, to connect the the puppet states of the LD, um, Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics to occupy Crimea. Uh, now, of course, you, that didn't happen. Ukraine managed to uh, push back the Russian offensive at that point. Um, but as you said, it is a distinct possibility that they would like to try again. Um, though that would raise the question, is, will Russia finally recognize the puppet republics? Because not even it has done that. From a Russian perspective, there's not really much of a reason to, uh, since they were never meant to be permanent entities. They were meant to uh, eventually serve as vectors of Russian influence in uh, whatever federal government is formed uh, post-ceasefire uh, and post-peace process. Though, obviously, that that process has completely stalled uh, Normandy notwithstanding. Yeah. And and just to, just to sort of, for, for, for the listeners who are less familiar with the detail here, what we're talking about is these occupied areas of eastern Ukraine and whether or not Russia would recognize them as independent countries, which, of course, no one else in the world would take that seriously. But Russia has form here, don't they? They've done that with one or two bits of Georgia that have been uh, either invaded or, or have, have, have been, been uh, subject to separatist movements. Sure. And this, there's this idea that um, it's, uh, it does that specifically so it can have land that serves as uh, a piece of Russian influence without having to spend federal money from its own budget for, you know, actually running them. Unlike Crimea, which was absorbed fully into the the structure of the Russian Federation. As for the, the other theory, that Putin may make a mad dash, as it were, for Kiev. Um, to be honest, I have a lot of mixed feelings here because... Uh, Putin has repeatedly sing, uh, signaled over the years, um, and most recently with an utterly absurd article that he wrote about the history of Ukraine, um, in which, among the many idiotic claims, was that Ukraine was created by the Bolsheviks uh, following the the um, Russian Civil War, which obviously it's utterly a historical 
um, and it's a, a complete fantasy. But statements like this and, and his repeated insistence that Ukrainians and Russians are one people and they're brothers and so on, you know, if they're to be taken seriously, which, again, anything that comes out of um, Vladimir Putin's mouth, it's always a question. But if you do look at them um, as, as a serious document, then you get the sense uh, that Putin does not recognize and will not recognize uh, the sovereignty of the Ukrainian people. He barely recognizes that they are, uh, that we exist at all as Ukrainians and not simply a different version of Russians. And given that, um, as well as Putin's statements um, about the tragedy of the fall of the Soviet Union and how he severely regrets it, he sees this as a geopolitical catastrophe, um, I wouldn't fault anyone for thinking that Putin may honestly want to rebuild the empire. Actually, Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said today that that is Putin's goal. Um, of course, as Artem, you pointed out, no one knows Putin's mind except Putin, um, even his inner circle. So how much credence you put in that theory is really uh, up to how good your your Putin guessing skills are. Yes. Yeah. Now, Artem, as, as Romeo said, none of us is going to get inside Putin's head. But what we can probably try to do, and I'd be really grateful if you could help us do that, is get inside the heads of the Russian population. Now, very few people anywhere uh, want a war. But what do you think... Uh, the average Russian feels about this issue. One, about the issue of whether Ukraine is a legitimate separate entity, but perhaps sort of more importantly, the bigger question that Putin is trying to frame, which is the idea that Ukraine aligns itself much more with Central and Western Europe, and therefore it has a special relationship with the European Union, it might join NATO at some unknowable future point, and those kinds of developments. I'd be very cautious about trying to ascertain what an average Russian thinks, because I don't think there is such thing as an average Russian. So on the one hand, you have the mass of population living in perhaps small small towns and, 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 and rural areas, which basically believe whatever television tells them to believe. On the other hand, you've got the younger people, the more liberal-minded people in places like Moscow, St. Petersburg, and some of the other large cities, um, which are, of course, mentally miles away from uh, people who depend on the Russian state for, uh, well, pretty much everything. I think for the younger people, for people who are more Western-oriented, if you actually ask them, they're quite embarrassed about Russia's kind of official position towards Ukraine and about this desire to say that we're all one nation. A lot of the people who live in Russia's big cities would say, look, the Soviet Union collapsed 30 years ago. Let's just move on from that. And let's just recognize that it's a separate independent country which has a right to its separate independent life. Now, the big issue here is that over the last few months, if not years, uh, a lot of these people have been pushed out of Russia. And a lot of them now live in places like Krieg or in Latvia or Vilnius in Lithuania, in other European countries as well. And their voice in Russia is getting quieter and quieter. This is very, uh, this is a very deliberate thing that Mr. Putin's government is doing as it's trying to silence all of, the, all of its critics. But I think whether that actually changes what an average Russian, in inverted quotes, because I'm not sure such a thing exists, thinks about Ukraine, is kind of not, neither here nor there. It's such a big, such a diverse, such a massive country that it's very hard to judge. What matters is, what is it that those Russians who make decisions think? And unfortunately, this is where I have to agree with Romeo, 
unfortunately, a lot of the people who are in Mr. Putin's inner circle subscribe to this view that Ukraine as an independent state, quote unquote, does not have a right to exist. Um, I suppose, I, I mean, I'm going to agree with you and contradict my earlier question. Of course, there's no such thing as an average Russian just as much as an average English or Luxembourger or anything else. But is your judgment that this is on balance positive for Putin because it makes him seem like a strong man? He's definitely, it's definitely a superpower if you're getting this much attention in the world. Or is it the opposite where people are saying, oh God, you're dragging us into another war. I don't want to see our young men come back in body bags. So I think if you'd asked me this question, Arthur, in 2014, just after the Crimean um, invasion, I would have said that this is very good for Mr. Putin's position in Russia. Now, this is 2022. It's a very different Russia. It's a very different world. And the feelings are also very different. And I think for many people within Russia, what Mr. Putin is trying to do is actually quite embarrassing. Um, Whether or not he invades Ukraine, I think that put to one side even the stretching up of tensions, that in itself is not something that many Russians would subscribe to. And what's actually quite interesting is that um, I said in the past that for a lot of Russians, what they think depends on what state television tells them to think. The rhetoric on state television has actually suddenly changed in the last few days. Up to probably a few days ago, maybe the beginning of this week, if you'd listened to Russian television programs, a lot of them were about how Russia has this military might and how Russia can crush all of its enemies, Ukraine including, and how the West and NATO and the Ukrainian army, none of them stand a chance. Now suddenly there's been a handbrake turn and now you're suddenly hearing things about Russia doesn't actually want to attack anybody, Russia is actually peaceful, we are actually the ones that are under pressure here. And the the degree of this rhetoric, the feverishness of this rhetoric, that's actually been taken down quite a notch. So I think that is actually an interesting signal to observe. Romeo, I wanted to go to you and just talk a bit about sort of what it's like to live in Ukraine at the moment. Now, the thought of living in a country that might be about to face invasion, now that's not unique to Ukraine's history, which has a lot more turbulence in it, but it's still a very unusual thought for people living in a modern European country. So what's the atmosphere? How are people behaving, responding to this this situation? To be honest, I think generally the feeling is of, well, you can call it disbelief or denial or simply a different perspective, but there is no panic. Um, People do talk about the threat, but aside from maybe this week, I've only begun to have conversations about how to get out if necessary, but it doesn't seem to register. Life in the capital is proceeding, you know, utterly normally. Um, No one is... Um, rushing to figure out where the bunkers are in their neighborhood. I mean, a few people are, but there's no kind of run for that. There's no run on the banks. Um, if people are preparing pack-and-go bags and so on, um, like I've done, they've mostly done it quietly um, without a lot of fanfare and social media. And generally, social media is, like, mostly memes. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, there are uh, there is fear. Um, there's there's no way to discount that, uh, especially with the kind of roller coaster pinball-y rhetoric uh, where you would hear, oh, you know, they're about to invade one day, and then, well, they're not ready to invade for at least a couple of weeks the next day. But generally, people are pretty calm so far. Um, maybe that situation will change in the next few weeks if indicators on the ground uh, from the Russian side change, um, but not at the moment. 
one thing which I noticed in social media, Romeo, and maybe it's just my feed on Facebook, maybe it's not the case, but I've suddenly noticed a lot of people putting Ukrainian flags on their avatars on, on Facebook. Yes, this has, been a, this has been a huge thing. Though, how much that translates into actual like knowledge of the situation beyond um, you know the awareness of listening to the headlines read out during your morning radio car commute? It's hard to say, but that but that shows, doesn't it? That shows a degree of uh, well patriotism, if you wish. This shows a degree of saying I'm I'm Ukrainian and proud to be one. Yes, of course, of course, and um, I think the last eight years have shown very well um, that far from being um, <laughs> a, a divided uh, fantasy nation made out of ethnic enclaves, as as um, the more extreme Russian propaganda tries to paint the country as, um, Ukrainians are pretty pretty united. I was reading the Times this morning and actually quoted to a colleague here in Ukraine, and here's a um, quote from a piece in today's Times. So, Ukraine, says the Times, appears woefully ill-prepared for war. Key installations have yet to be protected with sandbags. Windows have not been taped in preparation against shell blasts. Troop movements are minimal. Though some civilians have readied themselves on ice-crusted streets from east to west, Ukrainians are plodding on with their daily life in a post-Christmas torpor. And I read that to a Ukrainian colleague, and she just laughed, because that just shows you the how wide this gulf is be- between sort of the ordinary lives of many Ukrainians here in Kiev and, and, and what we think in the West. I'm really glad you've mentioned that, because I wanted to, to come on to that, which is sort of, it's almost, you can sense a bit of tension where the Ukrainian government is kind of saying to Western governments, Hey, you know, it's not as bad as that. You know, uh, dial it down a little. So, so w- what's going on there? Well, it's hard to say, as always. Um, to be honest, the so the Ukrainian government, what what does it actually do? Right. Whenever uh, I encounter something I don't quite understand, I always try to look at just the facts and work from there. So, what the Ukrainian government has actually said um, was first, you had um, the secretary of our National Security and Defense Council. Um, Alexei Danilov saying, oh, Russia's not going to invade. Um, and this was, I think, back in December. Two weeks later, our Minister of Defense, uh, Alexei Reznikov, saying, well, actually, Russia is going to invade. But then you had the president himself uh, tell Ukrainians to keep calm, claiming that the risk of invasion is not higher than it's been at any point uh, over the past eight years, which I think was a pretty questionable uh, assertion to make. But the general mood from the Ukrainian government is that uh, nothing bad is really going to happen. And, um, you know, as as Artyom pointed out with that Times article quote, uh, it's true there have not been any massive um, fortifications set up, um, not even increased security around uh, critical government facilities. So if you look at it from a strictly space perspective, it does not seem like the Ukrainian government itself believes there will be a renewed offensive or an invasion. Yesterday, you had a, or we had a late night call um, between Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky and, and U.S. President Joe Biden, where they discussed basic uh, diplomatic stuff. But what was more interesting were the reactions to the call with anonymous sources coming forward, claiming that there was tension in the call. The Ukrainians had asked the Americans to, to keep it down and stop making so much noise. Um, at the same time, there is that tension. Uh, you really do have U.S. intelligence going, listen, we have evidence of false flags. Here's this guy that 
that Putin wanted to put as the the leader of your puppet government. Um, and the Ukrainians are kind of shrugging. I think what's interesting here is your mention of anonymous sources, Romeo, because I think if you look at what the Western media have been publishing about this, about all of this sort of situation that has been developing over the last few months, a lot of their reporting has been based on anonymous sources, on leaks, on a member of the intelligence community told, you know, journalists such and such. And I think one thing which I would point out is that if I was editing any of those pieces, I'd be actually quite concerned about such an perhaps, perhaps such over-reliance on anonymous sources. To what extent that means that there's a narrative that's being pushed by the governments in the West themselves, well, discuss. But one thing which I observed, and I was doing this piece of work quite, quite recently for a client who is trying to build something really interesting, a piece of um, AI which is supposedly able to tell good journalism from bad journalism, I looked at how various Western sources quoted President Biden when he said um, that he thought Putin would invade. So if you look at outlets like Reuters, Washington Post, Financial Times, they all led on Biden predicts that Putin will invade Ukraine and then, quote, I guess he'll have to move in, he has to do something. Now, the full quote is... I do not know whether he's decided if he wants to do anything or not. It's too soon to say. I guess he'll have to invade, etc., etc. By chopping off the top of that quote, you actually you actually change its meaning. And I think what's happening there is that a lot of this is a sort of self-perpetuating circle, where a lot of this worry, a lot of this concern about Mr. Putin actually attacking Ukraine or planning to attack Ukraine is maybe being sort of whipped up within the West itself just because such is the logic on which politics and the media world operates. Now it's time to bring in Chatham House Associate Fellow in their Russia and Eurasia programme, John Luff. John, thank you for joining us. Hello, Arthur. Good to be with you. We began this discussion with both Romeo and Artem giving their perspective on, if you like, the trillion-dollar question of whether or not Russia is planning to invade Ukraine. So uh, this is not a predictions podcast. We're not going to be holding people to these, but I'm just interested in your take on that as a top level. Okay. I, I'm also intrigued when I hear this question, is Russia planning to, to do something? Of course, the Russian military have plans to invade Ukraine if needed. The, que- the question is, are they going to execute those plans? And it seems that we, to me that we're actually at a very interesting juncture at the moment, where it's felt in recent days as though uh, Mr. Putin is possibly pondering his options. The Clearly, this letter that was uh, delivered from the US side has uh, bought a little bit of time, at least. Maybe its tonality has um, exceeded uh, expectations. Maybe Mr. Putin is thinking about whether he, in fact, can extract something more than just the bare minimum from the US after these um, absolutely maximal and impossible demands that he made. But still, I I have to ask myself where where for him internally and and with the you know that sort of Siloviki group around him, where is the uh, the off ramp? He he seems to have staked uh, an enormous amount on on, on getting very drastic uh, concessions from the U.S. Uh, and its partners, and his you know his core dilemma is not resolved with respect uh, to Ukraine, because uh, he he clearly wants to stop this country moving further towards the West, 
um, adapting its uh, system of governance uh, so that it, uh, in fact, matches much more a, a, a Central European or indeed Western, Western European model uh, than a Russian model. So I am I'm not at this stage uh, persuaded that any you know, final decision has been made uh, in the Kremlin. Uh, there's going to be some very tense uh, diplomacy over probably the coming days and weeks. Many people think that uh, Russia, in, in any case, would not um, start anything drastic before the, uh, the Winter Olympics uh, are concluded. So we may have a little bit more time, but quite how on the Russian side, if Mr. Putin decides that he's not going to proceed with Plan A, if Plan A, in fact, was to lop off a bit of Ukraine or to build a land bridge to uh, Crimea or, or, or whatever, he, um, I, I think, has got some very, very tough decisions to make. And of course, uh, the other tough decisions are here in the West. Um, so, John, you and I are, are recording this in, in, in the UK. Both Romeo and Artyom are actually in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, we're seeing a range of responses from Western powers. Um, in the last 24 hours, we're recording this on the 28th of January. In the last 24 hours, the Germans seem to have clarified their position on Nord Stream 2, but I think it, it is fair to say that there is still quite a range of views from sort of France, Germany, possibly Italy in one part of the, the perspective and the US and the UK in another. It, that sounds like a rather familiar refrain, but it hasn't necessarily been the case in recent years. So how would you characterize the current views of the major NATO powers? And then going on from that, the likelihood of those powers being able to respond consistently and effectively to deter the Russians? Well, that is a very big, uh, a big question. Um, if I could just start maybe with a little sort of personal uh, anecdote. When I was uh, last in Berlin in September, and I spoke to some of my contacts there, what I was very struck by was they were alarmed by the fact that the US was alarmed about what might happen in Ukraine. And to me, that sort of suggested that they didn't 100% trust the intelligence that the US had been picked up or possibly had been fed. We, uh, we don't know. There was already a sense that the US might be over-interpreting what's happening. A desire, of course, um, you know, before the new government came in, I think probably to hope that the worst wasn't going to be happen and it wasn't going to be immediately tested. But it, it still seems to me as though we, we, we haven't sort of quite got out of this moment. Yes, Putin's you know, massed um, 110,000 troops or whatever it is on, on the border and, and, and made these threatening gestures. We had the ultimatums that perhaps it really isn't that bad. Perhaps he's just doing this um, in order to you know, make us... Um, Make make us jumpy, and uh, he did make that. Uh, Putin made that. Um, I, I think very important comment, if I remember correctly, to the um, that annual ambassadors meeting, where he said that it was important to keep Russia in this. Uh, sorry, to keep the West in this sort of state of uh, of tension. That was, that was yeah. the word he used, tension. And uh, well, he's certainly done that, and he's been he's been turning up the dial, uh, no doubt, in the expectation that uh, in fact the you know the alliance uh, will crack. Uh, the European partners uh, will not be aligned, and you know that will make life much easier. But I, to me, all the signs are that as this goes on, the 
European partners are likely to become more rather than less aligned. And we can see this in Germany, in fact. There's been quite significant progress in, uh, over even the last week. And you, Arthur, you referred yesterday to you know, this news about um, Nord Stream 2, where at least there seems to be some sort of consensus form in, forming in Germany that it really would be inappropriate to continue with this project if the worst, uh, the worst came to the worst. The, the government in Germany still has to find its feet. Scholz still has to show that he's capable of leading. He's been remarkably silent on the issue so far. And it's been up to the, you know, the inexperienced uh, Annalena Baerbock to sort of make the running. And to be fair, I think she's done quite well so far. Um, yeah. As far as you know, it's Italy, uh, certain other uh, countries, you know, Austria. Um, if you're looking at the sort of you know possible weak links, I don't know, you know, Slovakia. Um, I think the jury's out. But some of you, you may have seen the uh, sort of remarkable statement by the Latvian defense minister reported in the Financial Times today, accusing Germany of, um, if I remember correctly. Um, immoral and hypocritical uh, behavior towards both Russia and China. I mean, th this, this is just the sort of split that I, I think the Russians will be very happy to see, that the pressure is actually, yep. actually working. But, uh, you know, when push comes to a shove, my, my belief is still that in the case of Germany, that Germany will remain aligned with the US. Thank you. Um, a question which I, I want to pose actually to all, all three of, of the panelists, um, uh, perhaps we'll start with Romeo, uh, perhaps because it, it affects you most directly as, as a resident of Ukraine. And this is ultimately this question about NATO. Um, now, of course, this is much more than about the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO. I, I, it would be wrong to say that that's, that's what this, this, this crisis is all about. It's about a much bigger issue about Ukraine's ability to make its own decisions. But is it is is there perhaps a, a you know one can be devil's advocate for a moment and say well if you are russian the prospect of nato uh taking ukraine as a member ukraine this huge country with its 2000 kilometer border with russia with its um territory that just because of the geography lays open a large area of russia um, to effectively a NATO frontier. Well, can you see why why Putin would regard that as a rather threatening prospect? To be honest, it's always seemed to me that Russia's protestations about NATO encirclement and NATO forces close to its borders have always been misdirection. Because the fact is that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, NATO was never aligned against the Russian Federation. In fact, NATO and the Russian Federation cooperated pretty closely up until Russia decided to, um, and I heard this quote earlier today, stop being a, a good little member of the international liberal order, right? Once Putin decided that he wanted Russia to once again be a major player in world politics and not simply a regional power, that's when he began to see NATO as a threat. Um, I don't think in any realistic scenario uh, we can picture NATO troops going into Russia for any reason other than blatant Russian aggression against its neighbors. And that's the thing. Russia wants a sphere of influence. It wants the great game of the 19th century where the world's uh, powers have their own little uh, chess pieces to move on the great board of uh, world diplomacy. But in the 21st century, things don't work that way anymore. Uh, the world's moved on. Culture's moved on. 
Uh, Ukraine has certainly moved on. And so Russia is only scared of NATO in that NATO prevents Russia from simply bullying its neighbors around to move however it wants. Uh, And Ukraine as a non-NATO member is in fact a perfect example of that. We can't invoke Article 5. We don't have any military allies we can call on. And so what do we get? Annexation of part of our territory and occupation of another. Yeah. Artem? I think what I would add to that is that a lot of Russians would say to you, look, this idea that we have moved on from uh, the great power play, that we have moved on from that, all of that is in the past, is actually quite misguided. And um, there's a very strong feeling within Russia that, you know, if the Americans are, in inverted commas, allowed to control and influence places in Latin America, um, you know, Venezuela comes to mind, uh, then why should not be allowed to do the same um, in, in Eastern Europe? And I think the idea that the world has moved on and the world is no longer as it was perhaps at the time of the Yalta conference, that a lot of Russians would say to you, this is actually wishful thinking. And really, let's be cynical and that the great powers of which people in the Kremlin would say Russia is one, demand and have the right to have their own spheres of influence. I think that is what the um, sort of crux of the argument is. John, if I could phrase the question slightly differently for you on the basis, and correct me if I've got this wrong, but I think you worked in NATO's representational office in Moscow when such a thing existed. And of course, that that office no longer does exist. So you represented NATO to the Russian state as a professional. And I think it's fair to say that the hostility and suspicion of Russians towards NATO, in spite of what Romeo said, which is you know, factually appears correct that, you know, NATO has not done anything other than sought to be a defensive alliance, Uh, that hostility and suspicion continues. So whether we're drawing on your direct experiences of that work or or your your knowledge of the country, why is that? Why is it, why has NATO not been able to convince the Russian people or its leaders that it is not there to plan an invasion and, and encirclement of Russia but it exists to defend Europe. Well, Arthur, you're, you're right. I had the great privilege to be the, the first NATO representative based in Moscow. I started in 1995 in Moscow and finished in 98 and um, stayed, uh, then, then worked subsequently in, in Brussels. And I have to say we were dealing with um, a very different uh, Russia at the time. And when I was, uh, you know, first invited um, uh, to take up this role and, and uh, you know, started to... Uh, to settle into the job in Moscow, I remember going uh, for a, to, to have a meeting uh, at the the foreign ministry. I met with the the head of the the NATO section, who said to me, "We need you to provide objective information to the Russian public about what NATO is. It's very important for us that the Russian public understands that NATO is not the organisation they have." Uh, grown up to believe uh, that it is, in other words, you know, malevolent uh, out there to, to, to weaken Russia, uh, cannot possibly be any sort of constructive partner. That was this sort of brief moment um, in, in Russian, Russian history that passed, in fact, very quickly when the foreign minister Andrei Kozirev was replaced by uh, the veteran uh, Yevgeny Primakov. And uh, then Russia were, you know, began its... Um, uh, it's sort of full-scale, you know, sort of onslaught against uh, NATO enlargement. And before we knew it, we got into the uh, the Kosovo crisis. And in a sense, at that point, the die was cast. 
yes, there was a, a certain level of cooperation with Russia in the in the second half of the 1990s, in fact, including in Bosnia, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which was very effective. And if we had been able to build, I think, a little bit more on that, then it's quite possible that attitudes would have softened a little in parts of the, the Russian military. But what, what has really not changed is the... The, the Russian general staff's view of NATO, its, um, its intentions. For them, it's, um, you know, all, always comes down to this sort of, you know, question of capabilities and, and intentions. Uh, you look at the capabilities and then you decide what the intentions are and their, their model is, is a worst case, worst case scenario. So we never found this common language about how security could be built from the NATO way from, you know, bottom up uh, trust between countries, cooperation between them, the defense establishments know each other. This is very much the, the NATO model of um, doing things, which has been very, very successfully extended across Europe. Russia, unfortunately, for various reasons, did not want to play that game. And those um, Russian officers who worked at SHAPE, for example, in Belgium, uh, as part of the uh, the team managing the, the, the Russian brigade that was part of the peacekeeping operation there, they were people who very quickly started to understand what sort of organization they were dealing with. And the, the cooperation, I think, was really of the highest, highest level. But those people, when they went back to Moscow, found their careers ended in all cases. It was impossible for them to progress because they were seen to have been infected by the, um, the, the enemy. And that has been the stumbling block uh, throughout. So until, uh, or unless until we can find some common language about how security should be built in Europe, uh, I think we're going to be facing this sort of standoff uh, with, the, uh, with the Russian side. And I absolutely agree, the Russians do not accept the premise that the, you know, the, the postmodern world means that uh, things should not be run on the, on the Yalta model. They would like to go back to, to something which for them is much more familiar, predictable, and gives them a far greater measure of influence. Thank you. We're coming towards the end of the time. Uh, so I think I, I wanted to sort of try to go to the big picture. Um, and to some extent, this crisis over Ukraine illustrates a much bigger issue, which is that the sort of global order, the degree to which the structures that exist to regulate and limit conflict appear either to be breaking down or certainly to be under enormous strain. Um, so. With reference to the uh, current Russia-Ukraine crisis, I'd be very interested in the views of each of the panellists in terms of what are, will the lasting impact be? Of course, there may well be a major war, and the lasting impacts of that will, will be physical and, and will be very tragic for the people involved. But uh, in terms of the global uh, sort of balance of power, what do we expect to be uh, the lasting impact? Let's hear from Artyom first. You've called me out on a really, really difficult one here, Arthur. Um, <laughs> I think the lasting impact is likely to be a complete change in the way that security across the world operates, a complete change in the way the security infrastructure works. I think what we have all got used to in the past um, is likely shifting and is likely to have shifted beyond the point of no return now. So I think the question is, what will the new security system look like more so than can we somehow rescue what we've been used to in the past? Thank you. Romeo. So let's put aside the the question of what will happen if there's a major war, because I think there's 
there's no way to properly analyze what the fallout of that can be. There's no way to properly analyze how it can all spiral. I mean, we we uh, all, I hope, um, have some knowledge of World War One and are aware of how the the smallest things can turn into an absolutely uncontrollable conflagration. So let's put all that to the side. Um, in terms of where we'll see short term, I think is a greater understanding. Um, in Europe, among the European powers, um, that their eastern flank may not be as secure as it was. I mean, you've had the Baltic states raising the alarm about uh, Russian militarization for ages. Um, I think that process will only uh, accelerate further. Um, So I would expect them to start spending a little bit more on defense, start um, raising that that, uh, GDP to defense ratio a little higher, um, and generally a, a hardening of attitude. I mean, I think there have been enough European diplomats sitting in a room with their Russian counterparts at this point to realize that Russia is typically not there to debate in good faith. Um, and the frustration um, that you've already seen um, especially after that that week of summits where you had the NATO Russia Council, you had the bilateral talks between the U.S. and Russia and the OCE Russia Council. I think after that, um, there was this understanding among uh, NATO member states, and I may be wrong, I am interpreting, um, that you do need to show a little bit more strength towards Russia for Russia to begin to even want to hear out your point, point much less uh, respect it. Uh, John, I just want to put the same question to you in terms of what you see as the the kind of structural impacts of this crisis. Well, I think firstly, far far too early to say. Um, my my sense is that the optimal scenario now is that we will see some increased engagement between the U.S. and Russia. That we will possibly see an initiative to relaunch something, you know, some form of the INF treaty. Uh, equally, a you know a revamped uh, version of the conventional forces in in Europe treaty, maybe some reinforcement of the commitments that NATO made in 1997 uh, related to uh, NATO enlargement, which, by the way, the the Russian side was uh, more than happy with when NATO you know clarified in uh, I think it was the beginning of 1997 that um, you, you know it would have no reason or no need to. Uh, station you know, nuclear weapons on the territory of new member states or other commitments made there about not making permanent deployments of forces. There, there may be some things that can be done around that that uh, address uh, so-called you know, Russian uh, security concerns. I, I certainly think that the, the cause of you know, EU strategic autonomy has received uh, another major, major setback. And it's absolutely clear that Europe and its current state cannot um, do hard security without the involvement of the United States. So to that extent, I don't see uh, an awful lot changing. Well, we're out of time now, but I want to thank Artyom, Romeo and John for joining us at short notice at such a busy time to share their perspective. And thank you, the listeners, for joining us for this emergency Doomcast. We hope we won't have to do too many of these emergency Doomcasts, but you never know. So watch this space.
Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archbold. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.